coming up on the show today, Alex shocks me with his latest project. Seriously. Then he lays down some quick fire picks. So get your notepad ready. And then we'll discuss what's going on with OpenSense's WireGuard setup. I'm Chris. I'm Alex. And this is self-hosted. No, wait. The RV and Home Assistant podcast, episode 38? Thought I'd open today's show with a quick shout out to the self-hosted subreddit. We had some love from you guys this week. Hello, hello, hi, if you're listening. Hey there, how's it going? It was pretty cool. Like someone tagged me in one of the threads who is on our Discord and I don't know, it's just cool to see community come together like that. And uh, we aren't like an official partner with the subreddit or anything, but I I reached out to one of the mods or, well, they reached out to me and we, we had a chat about... A few things we might have them on one of the shows uh, in future, and it's it sort of got my mind thinking about how we can involve the community a bit more, mm. and you know, getting random people on to talk about their setups and sort of figure out what containers people are running, how much storage they actually have, what the hardware underneath is. You know, maybe we could have a little ten, fifteen minute segment every now and again with community members, like a community spotlight section. And you know what'll end up happening is we'll get all these ideas from each other and we'll then all go off and build projects and get excited to do different stuff. That'd be awesome. People often accuse me of making them spend money. Well, it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can attest to that, actually. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that has definitely been the case. I mean, the thing is, is I, I love just getting ideas from the community in general. We get people that email into the show, but like you were saying, also over on, on Reddit, there's some great ideas. And our Discord, that's another spot where I see people kicking around stuff and often either either tried something and it and then tell us about it or are thinking about trying something and want our advice that kind of stuff goes down in there all the time as well my favorite stuff to read about is well there's two things one is the stuff that works really well uh, and but the other the other thing is things you know all the stuff that people try and then abandon for whatever reason that's more often more interesting because that's what takes the time. That's what eats my time is trying stuff and failing and trying stuff and failing. And <laughs> if I can community crowdsource that stuff, I'm in. <laughs> Absolutely. There's always many ways to learn. Like our friends over at a cloud guru, they are the leader in learning for the cloud, Linux and other modern tech skills. They have hundreds of courses, thousands of hands-on labs. You can get certified, you can get hired, you can get learning at a cloudguru.com. Now, I've been doing a lot of uh, travel the last few weeks uh, back and forth to the hospital, and uh, I've been needing to use a lot of hotspot data. And I came across, this was on Hack 5, I think, actually. I came across just a really interesting little hack, little tip for anybody looking to do, you know, phone tethering uh, and try and bypass the uh, the limits that people have, that Verizon or AT&T and people like that set. Now you got my attention. Yeah, I'm sure I do, given that your house is on wheels. So the thing you can do is set something called a TTL, time to live parameter. And this is apparently how the phone providers recognize whether you're on a laptop or a phone. That seems too easy, too good to be true. But I can confirm having been streaming Netflix over 4G, 5G for the last month that uh, I went from it being unwatchable to being usable. So it does work. And there's a link in the show notes to a Reddit thread about this. This is fantastic. I absolutely have struggled with this. I've experimented with this myself. So by checking the TTL of the IP packets, they seem to be able to suss out the type of device that it is. But you can you can tweak that yourself, which is what this this guide walks you through. And there's other ways too. I have found WireGuard to be an extremely successful way to get around carrier bandwidth shaping, which is really what's happening here is they're looking at your IP traffic, right? 
And they can see, okay, well, you're going to YouTube on port 443 or whatever it is. They can actually look at the traffic because it's all running over their gear. They have complete access to your traffic. And they have systems in place that will automatically force, and and in some cases, in a really brute sort of lowbrow way, uh, one of the ways AT&T will do this is they will just make YouTube smack up against a wall and try all of the different bit rates until it YouTube, the servers, finally select a low enough bit rate, and then you and then AT&T will allow the YouTube traffic to pass. And that's how they do it. Then you have others like T-Mobile who will actually re-encode your video traffic while it's in transit. Really? Yeah, there's different approaches. That's nuts. That sounds... I mean, that's going to cost them a lot in CPU, surely, if nothing else. That may not be how they do it anymore either. They change as well. So that why I say today in early 2021 may not be how they do it at the end of 2021. Uh, but I have found, so what I do is I have a kind of a special sauce VPN. It's a bit of a proprietary solution from a vendor, but it bridges AT&T and Verizon. And the endpoint is a couple of Linode servers. And the carriers just have no idea what I'm doing when I when I do that. And that allows you to get around this, but it doesn't allow you to get around bandwidth limitations. So if you still have, you know, X amount, you know, 18 gigs a month and you can't go over that, it doesn't solve that problem. Are you on an unlimited plan? I am, yes. Uh, my employer pays for it, so I don't really have to look at the bill, which is quite a nice position to be in. Oh, <laughs> that is sweet. You mean, really, as a consumer, as a, as an average consumer, it's pretty tricky to even get unlimited data to begin with, let alone get it for free. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's you know it's Verizon Unlimited, so it's probably got all sorts of T's and C's. I think I get 30 gig of hotspot data, and then the rest is throttled down to like 600 kilobits or something like that. What this TTL parameter does is it basically gives you all of your data allowance that the T's and C's permit at full speed. That's effectively what it what this does. That is great. We will put a link to that in the show notes. It's going to be different per carrier, but that seems to work on Verizon. Mm-hmm. Now, have you been looking for a self-hosted file sync and sharing like web UI? This just came up, actually, within 24 hours. And I don't really know what's good anymore, so I'm hoping you have a solution for me. Well, I was spinning up some stuff on Proxmox the other day, and I had a VM, and I didn't have Samba installed on my server because I'd literally just built it. I hadn't run the Ansible, and I just needed one file. So I thought, why don't I find a web UI to browse my files? And I thought, well, I've got Nextcloud. I could just upload the zip file to Nextcloud. Oh, wait, I haven't deployed Docker yet. I haven't done all this stuff yet. So what I did was I ended up spending two hours to solve a five-minute problem by spinning up File Run, which is a self-hosted file sync and sharing solution. It purports to uh, install on any private Linux, Mac, or Windows server, but it will also support you know, cPanel-style PHP-based type stuff as well. I've got it running out of a container, well, four actually. So it uses um, the File Run uh, container itself. It uses Elasticsearch, and something called Apache Ticker to do file indexing, as well as uh, MariaDB or MySQL for a backend database. So it's not a light, super lightweight thing, but it is very pretty, it's very performant, and it does exactly what it says on the tin. I don't really need the search, so I don't need all that overhead. What I really wanted was just browse my files, but this does have something I hadn't considered, but now looking at the feature list would be extremely useful and that is it lets you send file requests to somebody. So I could send you a request. Say, hey, Alex, send me that, uh, you know, send me that batch of pictures or whatever. And then it would give you a way to send those to me. 
It's not like you send and receive files around the internet for your day job or anything, is it? Yeah, right? And so to actually be able to request something from someone, it just seems like it's a, it's a sort of an extra level of care for guests on the network. And then it also supports guest users too, which I also would need. So uh, help me understand this. Is it creating its own document space and what you upload and put into it is what you see through the web UI? Or does it let you browse existing folders and files on your server? So you're trying to compare it to a Nextcloud with that comment, I suppose. With Nextcloud, you end up sort of creating your own space within your file system. But this guy, File Run, you just point it at a file share or an existing directory or a volume bind mount, in my case, with a container. And everything just showed up. I didn't have to change permissions. I didn't have to mess about with anything else. I've actually got it set to read-only just because... Well, I mean, the, the DNS that I have is, is exposed through traffic, so I mean, it's not going outside my LAN anyway. But, you know, I feel like a web UI, it's a bit too easy to get a bit trigger-happy sometimes. So it's it's read-only for me. I just want to use it to download the odd file here and there. But it's uh, it's very useful, and no import is required. So, yeah, very easy to get started. That is exactly what I was hoping for. It seems it also even has file versioning, if that's something that matters to you. And has a trash, so if you delete something, it'll first store them in there before it gets permanently erased. So you kind of have a escape hatch if you need it. All right, yep, I'm uh, I'm gonna deploy this, especially since it seems like you 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 need to do Alex. You got to send me your Docker Compose for me. Make it real easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, but no, I'm gonna give it a try. That's a great find. It's called again File Run. So they do offer an enterprise version. In case you see any prices or anything like that, it's free for up to ten users for personal and family use, but they have paid versions for you know small businesses and, and enterprise as well so they have a means to make money they have a business side and uh, that's that means it's probably going to stick around does use web dev though i'm never mad keen on web dev but that does mean you can do file syncing using i think the next cloud client we'll talk to this and if you're behind a corporate firewall too it's just kind of nice to do everything over the web ports i'll put a link to my compose snippet in the show notes. Uh, I did come across a new project called TermPad. I think it's TermPad.io this week. All right, let's take a look at this. TermPad, huh? TermPad.com. My, my apologies. And it's a very, very super simple, like if you just create some text and then click save. Oh, that's what I'm seeing. Oh my gosh, it's a full screen, not a terminal per se, but it looks kind of like one. This is just a write space. It's neat. You know, like Docker containers come up with fake names if you don't name them, like uh, Angry Torvalds or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny my mind went to Angry Torvalds, isn't it? It's funny. Funny that. <laughs> so the one I've just created for you was termpad.com slash awful wide-eyed napkin, which is a really <laughs> strange, random generated name. But it does uh, code syntax highlighting as well, just for super simple, you know, paste, paste bin stuff. There's no database. It's all just open. So... Turnpad.com is a hosted version, uh, free. I don't know what happens to the data on that one, but you can self-host it as well. There is a container, uh, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. Kind of surprisingly useful. I love it. Okay, well, let's see if you are two for two here, Alex. Tell me about TinyPin. We're going to be redoing our bathroom soon. So I was I was looking across Pinterest the other day, and it's, it's just garbage. They make you sign in and do all this kind of nonsense about tracking what you're looking at. And I mean, it's kind of okay from a discovery point of view, but it's it's also just garbage. I hate Pinterest. So I, I went on the look for something, you know, minimal to just share like a mood board almost. And I came across Tiny Pin. We'll put a link in the show notes, of course. And this is a self-hosted minimalistic image collection board. Super simple. You can run it in a container and 
there isn't a lot else to say. It, it just does the job it's supposed to do, which I suppose is the praise that you want. And it's nice to see that they have Chrome extensions and through iOS shortcuts, there's a way you could add it to your share sheet as well, it seems. That's handy. I don't see necessarily something in here for Android, but there probably is a means if you can uh, think it up. I had a quick look at TinyPin just before the show, and it is very minimal, but it does a good job of laying images out in different sizes in a very dynamically scalable way. So you can have a tablet size, you can have a full web page version, or it can be on your phone. And it, it actually manages to sort of present the images in a unique way while also letting you get in there at full screen. So I, I kind of, I think this is a nice little find. I don't quite grok how it's, okay, can you explain to me how it's sucking the images in and storing them? Because that's the part I don't quite grok. No, I'm not sure. It stores in the back end. It stores stuff in a data directory. So it's just a volume bind mount on the file system. Nothing too crazy. No database needed or anything like that. And you could go sniffing through there and back them up pretty easily if you needed to. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're two for two. I think that's a pretty good find. I think also the wifey would really love that one. That'd be a good one to add to the home server to impress her, I think. Now I want to see if you can be three for three on this one, Alex. Tell me about OpenSense 21.1. I I've, I've vicariously OpenSense through you. <laughs> well, PFSense made a bit of a stink the other week by adding WireGuard support finally. And uh, not to be outdone, the uh, OpenSense project released 21.1. One, which is nicknamed Marvelous Meerkat. Hmm. They say that it has new and improved firewall rules, NAT categories, better traffic graphs, all that kind of stuff. And uh, they have a really small dig in their release notes at PFSense, which I really enjoyed, which says, for those wondering, the WireGuard plugin has been available on OpenSense since 2019 and receives continuous improvements by its maintainer. And that feature is unlikely to change. <laughs> my eyes were immediately drawn to that in, the, in their release notes i didn't realize pfsense had added wireguard but this is really good now we have it in both OpenSense and pfsense our wireguard future is arrived i'm just sad that it didn't make it into in 2020 because my prediction was that pfsense would ship wireguard but i guess those bsd guys just shit when they're ready no uh, plans for you to go back i assume you're gonna stick with the old OpenSense, i would imagine <sighs> OpenSense is kind of driving me crazy. Oh. Uh, there's a few reasons. Mostly to do with WireGuard, if I'm honest. I just think the implementation is... Uh, maybe it's user error, okay? I, I, I will fully admit that I am not a network guy, but I spent, from the hospital, at least two or three weeks for maybe half an hour to an hour at a time, most days, trying to get WireGuard fully working. So I can connect in remotely just fine. I can ping the firewall just fine. I can connect to the web UI of the firewall itself just fine. I can route traffic through my home internet connection just fine. But I can't access any hosts on my LAN, which kind of defeats the purpose for me. I mean, I don't necessarily really want to route my traffic through my house, but it's a nice benefit of WireGuard. What I wanted was to be able to access Proxmox or ESXi remotely and continue rebuilding my servers, which I've been doing for the last couple of months. And I've wasted... I, I don't even know how many hours trying to make this effing thing work. And I, I, you know, I wrote the man page on WireGuard for OpenSense and I feel like a fraud because I just can't make it work. <laughs> I wrote the book. <laughs> I'm convinced at this point that there is a bug that I can't find. So I'm probably going to nuke and pave my OpenSense install, which is, ugh, I don't want to do it, but I've wasted so much time and I'm convinced I've got all the firewall rules set up correctly that I don't see that I'm left with any other option. 
And so that then makes me think, well, if I'm going to nuke and pave OpenSense, why don't I try ViOS or some other, I don't know, what? there's a million different options to try out there. Or I could just go whole hog and run, you know, CentOS streams and IP tables. <laughs> go full West Payne on it is what you could do there. So he does at home. <laughs> Yeah, that WireGuard routing issue is tricky. He and I had to do some troubleshooting to get that working here at the studio. ViOS, I've heard the Discord talking about that recently. Is that a firewall platform? It is, yeah. It's Linux-based, so not BSD. There's no web UI whatsoever, so far as I'm aware. I did try it once about a year ago for a few hours, and the learning curve is real, so I gave up. (laughs) The, The trouble is with learning a firewall is you go on the internet to Google stuff, don't you? But if your firewall's down, you have a hard time doing that. So there are some things that are so mission critical that I just almost can't be bothered to change them because I know how much work it's going to be to learn a new thing and OpenSense is good enough. I do love the project. I mean, I think it's it's very stable. I, I never have to reboot the box. I never have to worry about updates or anything like that. But this WireGuard issue is kicking my ass, to be honest with you. I agree. It is a great product. It is a solid project that, uh, and, and PFSense before it too, just, I also really like it. But I get you. I know what you mean. Um, and sometimes it's really easy with WireGuard because something has it built in, like some of the uh, GI routers that we've talked about before. And sometimes it, it's something you got to build up. I'm the guy that was trying to do WireGuard from behind a double carrier grade NAT to a Linode, then down to the studio. And I wanted to get to everything by its name and... I mean, it's quite the setup. Maybe we'll chat more about it sometime. What I did end up doing was I ended up looking at the Linux server WireGuard Docker image. Now, this thing is slick AF. So you spin up the container, you do it in Docker Compose, you name your peers just as an environment variable. So you can either say, I want peers four, you know, so I want four peers and just deal with peers via a number. Or you can say peers and then just put a space limited list. So, you know, you put phone, space, desktop, space, server, whatever, as the environment variable, and it will go and generate all the config files for you. But here's the really cool bit. They've built in an alias into the container that will print out a QR code for each of those setups from a single line command. It's just slick, you know, after messing about with OpenSense for so long, and it's kind of older, less mature, uh, I would say, implementation to come across the Linux server container was just a breath of fresh air. And, and so I ended up using our sponsor, Linode. Uh, so you can use the coupon code linode.com slash SSH. I ended up using our sponsor, Linode, to spin up a host dedicated to running this Linux server WireGuard container. And it just works really well. The performance is great. And I'm able to back this thing up. So I know that if anything happens, I've got the Linode backups. It just works really, really well. And whilst I was fiddling about with this container, I ran across a blog post from uh, John Muchovich. I'm sorry, I probably butchered that name. Uh, the website link will be in the show notes, of course. And this is super cool. It lets you route specific containers through the WireGuard container as well. So you're able to use the Docker networking to potentially have multiple instances of WireGuard going to different places for different services, all on the same box. And it uses a parameter that is released as part of Docker Compose 3.8 schema of network mode service colon WireGuard to route the traffic through that container. So 
you could, for example, basically bind Nextcloud or any other service to listen only on that WireGuard server just using one line of config in your Compose file. Super cool, and I love this kind of stuff. We had accusations this week of being the Raspberry Pi and RV Home Assistant podcast. Well, it kind of goes that way sometimes, but I think it's a reflection of the trends of the time, man. Pies come to a really good price point and performance. Low power is more popular than ever. Also, low noise, I'll point out. And Home Assistant is just blown up in the last three years. You know what's really going to annoy that commenter in particular? Is that I have been running Home Assistant on the Pi. So we're going to talk about the Pi for a little bit right now. Uh, for the last month. And it's been great. The Pi 4. I, I found an old SSD in a drawer. 120 gig SSD that's probably five years old. And I have, from my shucking of easy stores, I have a, a USB to SATA uh, converter. So I just reused that. So I'm upcycling, reducing e-waste, all that kind of good stuff. Go me. And I put the Raspberry Pi Home Assistant image on there, expecting it to be, you know, I'm coming from an x86 platform. So whilst I move across from my Xeons to the Intel system and sort of redo things and move things around. I got fed up of my DNS stopping working all the time because I was running AdGuard in a container. And I got fed up of Home Assistant not being up because it automates a lot more in my house than I really realized when it's not there. And I was expecting the Pi to be just a stopgap. I was expecting it to be good enough, but I was expecting to be ready to leave it after a few weeks. And I'm pleasantly surprised to report that I, I think it's fine for most people. Wow, I got to take all this in. This is uh, <laughs> whew, this is a moment in the show, episode 38. Mark it down in the books, everybody. Wow. <laughs> wow. Because I feel like you always thought I was a little silly for doing it on the pie. I did. I'll be honest. Yeah. I mean, this, the storage <laughs> thing is still a problem. I, I don't like having an SSD with its ass hanging out on my desk with some random SATA to what a USB board connected up. And I'm not comfortable, if I'm being honest, with so much of what I depend on running over USB. Yeah. I don't like it. I agree, totally. But the performance has been good. I mean, I don't do anything too crazy with image processing or anything like that through Home Assistant. I do that generally uh, through Blue Iris, which is a dedicated box in my closet over there. And this leads us nicely into some follow-up. So a little while ago, I talked about doing uh, or wrote about doing Intel GVT-G pass-through, which is virtual GPUs. So you can slice up the graphics card built into your CPU into a couple of slices, give Plex and QuickSync one slice, and then give Blue Iris and QuickSync another slice over there. And then there's still some left for the host at the same time with no PCIe GPUs required. That's like the holy grail for me. That was like the perfect setup. Unfortunately, it didn't work very well. Didn't work out very well. What happened? I was getting kernel panics with uh, Proxmox. I was getting oh, no. hung processes without kernel panics. So it was fine as long as I wasn't running Blue Iris. And I think the Windows Blue Iris load was just too much for the GVTG stuff to handle. And uh, I wrote a blog post about how to do it with Proxmox. And a lot of people have been pinging me about the performance and stuff like that. So this is unfortunately my update is to say that I have bought and sold an HP 290 in the last month because I was so happy it worked. And then the proof in the pudding turned out to be it wasn't good enough. So I've gone back to a dedicated Windows box for Blue Iris with QuickSync. 
And now my server is still the i5-8500 that I purchased running Plex using QuickSync on that box uh, with pass-through for the storage and all that kind of stuff to a VM. So I'm running Plex on the host, but I'm still running most of my containers in a VM on that host with Proxmox. And a lot of people will think I'm mad for doing that, but I prefer doing it that way because it minimizes the number of reboots I need to do on the host. When you say you're running on the host, do you mean in a container or do you mean actually installed like a package? Plex is running in a container on top of Proxmox, uh, a Docker container, not an LXC. Um, I'm using LXC for stuff like AdGuard and uh, a couple of other things like uh, Bastion SSH host and that kind of stuff. But uh, for the most part, I like to try and keep the host as clean as possible uh, to minimize host reboots because, you know, when I reboot that server, it takes a lot of services out and it's a pain in the bum. So I'd rather not do that. And Proxmox, does it still give you a GUI to manage a Docker container pretty well? Like all that's just built into Proxmox? Not Docker, no. It does LXCs, but not Dockers. So did you get on the host, like command line and install Docker? and SSH, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, so Proxmox is built on top of Debian. Mm-hmm. And actually the route that I went to install Proxmox was uh, a naked Debian install. And then you can install the uh, Proxmox packages and repos on top of that. So it's just you know, vanilla Debian with the Proxmox kernel effectively. It's not like FreeNAS where you start mucking about on the host OS and you could really screw stuff up. That's what's always put me off on these appliances. You could. I mean, it's it's, it's Linux, but uh, Proxmox isn't an appliance. It's an abstraction layer. So they do weird stuff with like networking and they put all the VM configs in, in, you know, bespoke places that are unique to Proxmox. And that's probably my biggest issue with Proxmox as a project, to be honest, is it's slightly esoteric. But... Once you learn those little foibles, does the job. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's too bad. And you were able to get it working. So you kind of have a real, I mean, a bit of a hodgepodge right now. Sounds like you got like three different servers were running in your house right now. I did, yeah. So I predicated all of my buying and purchase decisions around this Intel GVTG stuff actually working. Mm-hmm. And it was only once it had been in production for a couple of weeks, I sort of really realized that, no, nah, this isn't this isn't going to be reliable enough and I'm going to have to constantly keep poking and tending this thing. And uh, so, yeah, going back to the HP 290 as a Windows box, the i5-8500 based system with Pi KVM as my server. And then I've got a home lab box as well, which currently is the dual Xeons, which I was running for the last two, three years with 128 gigs of RAM. And I'm going to use that as like a, a home lab slash backup box. So I'll, I'll power it on minimum, I don't know, once a week, whatever. Have a couple of 10 terabyte hard drives in there and mirror my ZFS array with ZFS send or whatever. And then that'll be my on-site backup effectively. But what I'm thinking is that those dual Xeons are massive overkill for running OpenShift in you know my context of developing infrastructure at work, which is which is its primary use case. And so I'm thinking maybe I could get away with a knuck or two for that role, or maybe I should just stop spending money and just use what I've got. <laughs> well, I think clearly you just haven't gotten the pie religion enough because that just sounds like great uses for a bunch of pies. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, you also have a pie running now. You now have a pie running with Homeless. So it is a several systems. Yeah, I think I think so. I probably will take Home Assistant off the pie. And I'll probably put it back on Proxmox because I've got NVMe storage in there. It's going to be more performant than the Pi, particularly when you're loading lots of plugins like VS Code and the heavier stuff like Node-RED. You do notice a difference there. 
Yeah, or snapshots or updates. Yeah, yeah, updates for sure. It takes ten or fifteen minutes instead of five. So yeah, you do notice. You do notice it's a, it's a less powerful system, but but in terms of just day to day functionality of controlling your devices and automations, it it does do the job just fine. Well, that's the thing about an automation, right? Is it it just happens without me knowing how long it takes, and yeah, if it takes eight milliseconds instead of four, I don't really care. <laughs> No, and for me, in my particular use case, um, because in 2021, I think I will be off-grid more than I ever have been. Power matters more than ever. I've actually been condensing down. Uh, I'm now down to just two pies, and I'm th- I'm going to try to condense down to maybe just one pie or the Odor item. I'm not sure yet. The pie intervention that we staged appears to be working then. Yeah, it's funny. As I'm sort of scaling down, you're scaling up your pie usage. I think you'll be on the show soon. Tell me about more pie deployments you've done. <laughs> you say that. But I was looking at the Odroid stuff, um, particularly after the Home Assistant Blue came out. I was like, okay, well, this is the future of Home Assistant. I should just buy one of those and, and call it good. But they're $180. That's too much. Like compared to the, what you can buy as a used Dell or a used HP system, the HP 290 that's now running my Blue Iris was $140 shipped. And for that, I got a 500 gig hard drive. I got eight gigabytes of RAM and a QuickSync-capable 8th-gen Intel CPU with two PCIe slots. So I can add an NVMe drive. x86 compatibility. Yeah, and x86 as well. So I could add any 8th-gen Intel CPU into there if, for whatever reason, the Celeron that's in there isn't good enough, which it is, actually, for the six cameras that I have uh, with QuickSync. I could add an NVMe drive in there. I could add more RAM. I can do PCIe slots. And it was $140. It is too expensive then. The Odroid is just too expensive and it doesn't have the compatibility that the Raspberry Pi 4 does. I'm still feeling the pain from that Helios purchase. Yeah. I still feel really almost burned by that because I thought ARM would be better by now. It's just a struggle. Like when you, Whenever you're trying to do something, you'll always come across some edge case of the container you want to run doesn't have an image for the correct architecture. Or, you know, some package isn't built for ARM or it's not got QuickSync. I know I keep going on about QuickSync, but it is amazing. And for me, the the price I pay of a few extra watts and a few extra liters of space in my house being used up is is totally worth it for not having to futz around with ARM stuff for another year or two until it's ready. Yeah, I think that's that's a perfectly reasonable outlook. Even you make a good price argument. I think the the reality is is that if I could only choose between an x86 box or an Odroid type system for my home hosting, I would absolutely choose the x86 box every single time. There are a kind of examples in the market, though, that show us where ARM is going. So I think this is going to be a solved problem. It, it really kind of demonstrates how it's all about implementation. You look at Apple with the M1, look what they're capable of doing with ARM. And then you look at, say, uh, the Raspberry Pi Foundation and the different kind of scale of machines they can do with ARM and the ecosystem they've built around it now and the foundation that they have built around it. There are implementations that do it really well. And then their implementations are a little bit rough. And I think it's so nuanced, it's hard for consumers to understand the value differences there. And I think that's why you and I have been kind of chewing on this recently is because these are sort of the unspoken things that aren't necessarily specs that are bullet points on a web page. These are the more nuanced things that you learn over time when you use them in production. By using it, yeah. By trying to solve a particular problem and butting your head up against 
endless forum posts or in some cases because what you're trying to do you're you might be the first trying to do it on arm uh there are no forum posts and good luck to you you know well our friends at a cloud guru want you to know about their linux networking and troubleshooting course this month this is something you may want to look into if you need the fundamentals or want to know more about tools and techniques or use cases to configure manage and troubleshoot linux in a networking context by the end of their course, you'll feel comfortable in working with a large variety of networking tools and configurations to manage complex Linux networking implementations. It's at a Cloud Guru, and we will have a link in the show notes to go specifically to this course or go to a cloudguru.com. Continuing talking about the Pi, just to annoy that one specific Reddit commenter. <laughs> I'm, I'm full troll mode today. <laughs> we talked about backing up Home Assistant last time through a Google Drive plugin. And a little birdie tells me you tried it out at last. You talked me into it. You did. Hooray. <laughs> you and the audience, we got a couple of emails in about it too. And so I finally gave this Google Drive backup a try. It's an add-on specifically for Home Assistant. And this is a good example of why it's kind of nice to have the full supervised Home Assistant setup is it's easy to add repositories for this kind of stuff and you're off to the races. And what it lets me do, and if you're not familiar, we talked about it a little bit, is it lets you take your snapshots and send them up to Google Drive. Pretty simple. That's all it does. What I've learned now after using it for a little bit is it, it has a couple of nice built-in management features. It'll keep four snapshots locally, and then by default, it'll keep four snapshots in Google Drive, but that is totally configurable. You can also have it automatically create the snapshots for you, which is probably a feature I needed more than I realized. I've, I was only doing snapshots right before major events, but if you think about it, it could break at any time. <laughs> Something could die. You need, you need stuff that's more current. So I set this every three days at 2 a.m. to take a snapshot and then upload it to Google Drive. And what I really was impressed by is how it displays what snapshots are local only, what snapshots are on Drive, and just really easy options to manage it. And as you would expect, it's stupid easy to connect it to your Google account. It just uses all of Google's authorization stuff where you go through all the standard Google login screens and it's set up and you're off to the races. I can't believe how easy it was. And now it's just hands off. There's a little triangle as well that shows up to say this snapshot will be deleted when I run the next backup set just so that you know, oh, right, that's my weekly snapshot falling off the end of the conveyor belt. I like this pairing with Duplicati too. So this is how I'm still backing up any of my system level stuff. This has nothing to do with Raspberry Pi or Home Assistant. You could use this on any Linux box and I really, really love it. Duplicati is what I use for offsiting my Docker Compose files, my configuration files in general, Etsy config, any of those kinds of things that I think I would want to be able to restore if I were to reload a base system. I use Duplicati to offsite that system level stuff. So now I have this Home Assistant Google Drive paired for the snapshots, which is the application level stuff, and Duplicati for the system level stuff. And I feel like I probably have my backup more dialed in than I ever have right now. Are you not ever tempted to use, you know, Git to manage your config files? Because they are just text files. You've put that seed in my mind a little while ago, and I have been considering it. It's mostly just taking the time to set it up and bother (laughs) because what I have now kind of works. So I don't have like an impetus to replace it, but I know I probably should replace it before I have that impetus. (laughs) I'm reminded of a conversation I had at my first developer job with uh, one of the senior architects. I I came in fresh out of my uh, computer science degree. Just a lad. 
Yeah. Saying, well, why don't we just rewrite this? Why don't we just rewrite that? Well, I mean, this is stupid. This is really old. Why are we still running Java 5? And blah, 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 blah. And he sort of sat me down and it was over like lunch break. It wasn't like a, a super formal thing, but it was like, well, what you've got to realize, Alex, is that when you rewrite code, obviously there's a cost to rewriting the code. Someone has to pay that bill. The business, in air quotes, the business has to pay that bill. Some, some product manager somewhere has to sign off product owner and, and say, yes, I'm going to pay for this out of my budget and do that. All right. Okay, cool what's the spec going to be? Well, at a minimum, it's got to be what it already does. But what the product owner is looking for is something extra. They want to add a new type of you know, credit card that they can accept, or they want to add a new feature, whatever it might be. And so the bill for them to add a new feature to the existing pile of crap that's already there is you know, 5% versus 105% of rewriting the entire code base, which could take multiple years, during which time you still have to innovate to keep ahead of your competition and patch and write code for the old code base. And you're just like, oh yeah, now I see why massive enterprises have code bases that are 30, 40 years old that people are scared to touch because what they have just works and is a is a stinking cash cow. So the spec is the code. The code is the spec. Why would anybody fit? If you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it or just keep fixing the minimum viable fixes. You know what you call technical debt. They call an investment. <laughs> it's, it's very true. It's very true. Yeah. I've, uh, I've, I've very much had th- that same arc over my career. I was the, bowl in the china shop let's come in and tear it all down and replace it with the new stuff guy and towards the end i was the guy being like well let's not replace it let's build on what we've got but i feel like in some ways you know you learn how to do things better and by the end you should be able to build on on what you've done um but it's software's tricky like that sometimes it is better just to restart and we see it a lot with the projects we use to self-host you'll see them either fork or you'll see them just sort of reboot completely with a little bit less features because that's the only way they could get it out the door. Well, we're just about done, I think. As always, you can go to selfhosted.show slash contact. That's the place to go to get in touch with us. And you can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger. Yeah, I'm there too, at Chris LAS, and the show is at Self Hosted Show. Don't forget the network at Jupiter Signal, and that was selfhosted.show slash 38. Did you mail order barbecue? Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) How does this work? Do they cook it beforehand and ship it to you? They do. But then it arrives cold, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, frozen. So they have these big polystyrene things with ice blocks in. So you and I met at Texas Linux Fest in, uh, was it 18, 2018, I think. And uh, we went to Terry Black's as part of that in Austin. Which was life-changing barbecue for us. It was... Phenomenal. I want to go back to Austin so bad. <laughs> I've only been back once and it was absolutely everything that I remembered. It wasn't like a false memory. It was just as good as I thought it was going to be. And so if you can't go to Austin, bring Austin to you, right? So I, I got a coupon from Amex for 50 bucks off if I spent $100 on a website called Goldbelly. They let you mail order food. How have I not heard of this? <laughs> They do stuff like Philly cheesesteaks from Philadelphia, which are amazing. Stop it. (laughs) But they also do, you know, Franklin Barbecue have limited runs of their briskets and stuff. There's some Kansas City people on there too. Oh, this is no joke in price though. 
Well, no joke. Y- yeah, no. It's, yeah. I mean, you're paying for a whole brisket. Done by the pros too at that, right? <laughs> if if I'm paying for a pack of brisket from a quality butcher, I'm paying 100 to 150 easily in North Carolina for that brisket. You know, raw. This thing from Terry Black's, I think, was 170 or something like that delivered. And if I factor in the amount of time it takes me to cook this damn thing, you know, 13, 14 hours, all the prep, all the mental space that takes up, it's actually not that expensive, particularly with a $50 coupon. Yeah, well, not to mention the price to go to Austin, if you were going to get it that way. I think it's a good deal, you know. Uh, We need some freezer food, so why not make it delicious? Yeah, so how are you going to reheat it? Because that would be my big concern is... You don't want to dry it out. You don't want to mess it up. You want to make it as close to original as possible. comes with instructions. I haven't done it yet, but the, the Philly cheesesteaks that I've done were pretty easy. You just let them defrost in the fridge one by one, stick them in the oven for 20 minutes. I did a little bit of time in the air fryer as well, just to make it nice and crispy on the outside uh, with a little zap in the microwave to make sure it was hot in the middle. And yeah, just delicious. Really good. Step one, thaw overnight in the refrigerator. Step two, take the meat out of the vacuum sealed package. Step three, melt one full stick of butter. <laughs> Step four, baste the melted butter all over the meat and wrap it tightly in foil with the backside facing up. And then step five, place the sheet tray on, on, a, on an oven uh, tray. Reheat at 300 degrees until internal temperature is at 165, 2 to 2.5 hours total. Huh. Uh, that temp the fatter end and check every hour or so. Then rest the brisket for at least 30 minutes before slicing. Step seven, enjoy. <laughs> oh, yeah, step seven. That's the one. So, I mean, I'm pretty curious to see how this turns out. I don't know if it'll yeah, be that sounds nice. any good, but I feel like it's a, a special occasion investment I can get away with every now and again. Totally, totally. I think I'm going to keep that in my back pocket to surprise the wife. She'll be delighted. How do I don't know about this? This is going to be bad for me. (laughs) (laughs) 